Welcome. Today we're going to be going over Build Discipline 5, the hermeneutic. D5, the hermeneutic. What we're going to be looking at is how we might honor the Lord in our Bible reading. That should be the desire of every believer, that we would glorify him in everything that we do. And how much more should it be the heartbeat of each one of us as we come before him in his word, that we would please him in how we handle our Bibles, in how we shepherd our heart with God's truth, that we would come before him humbly, submissively, seeking his glory above all else. Have you ever had a time in your life where you had a particular verse that you loved, you knew, and it was just your heartbeat verse, your life verse? This verse just came to mind in every circumstance you found yourself in. And then maybe a few steps down the road, you come to find that this verse that you have known and loved, this life verse of yours, actually doesn't mean at all what you thought it did. And now you're left wondering, what do I do with my life? This verse doesn't mean what I thought it did at all. I know for me, there was an aha moment fairly young in my life. I'd been a believer for a decade, and yet I was spending some time with a very close friend of mine, and we were discussing free will and predestination, and I had built up a theology mostly rooted out of my own flawed logic that we must have a choice. And my friend, my close patient friend, opened up his Bible and encouraged me to open mine and pointed me to several different verses looking at God's sovereignty and salvation, that God has predestined us according to his will, the kind intention of his will, and so on. And I kept arguing, yes, but I'm not a puppet. And he would take me back to the verse. And after going back and forth for four hours, I'm looking at my Bible, looking at Ephesians 1. And I just come to the point where God's word says what it says. I could argue no more. And for me, it was really an, an aha moment. And as I, as I saw that truth, I had this kind of pit in my stomach where I thought, what else do I believe that's not true? And my life became just this searching out of God's word to better understand it and to, to root out areas where what I believed was just wrong. And that was such a critical and important time for me in my life to come before God's word and try to to scrape away all of the preconceived ideas of what I thought God's word said about various things and just to simply look at his word and try to take him at his word and understand what has he actually said? What has he actually revealed? Now listen, for some of us, that practice of searching out scripture, of study and things like that, for some of us, that comes fairly natural and we enjoy that process, we are heavily engaged in that process, that's a stimulating process for us to engage in those types of things. For others, it's the complete opposite. Uh, we aren't wired that way, and it's not something that we're drawn to. Uh, we're intellectually stimulated by things other than studying language and history and context and all these other things that we might look into. But regardless of where you are in that spectrum, the reality is, is that if you're a believer, your heart's desire must be to honor the Lord in everything, in everything, and especially in the handling of his word. These are his words, and we must be faithful to understand what he meant when he wrote it. What did he mean? What did he actually reveal? Not what are our impressions or what are our ideas or desires, but what has he actually revealed? So I want to encourage you, no matter where you are on that spectrum, this is a worthwhile endeavor to grow for the rest of our lives, to grow in how we handle God's word so that we would please him. Now, this uh, session, we're going to be going over seven principles for shepherding your heart 
to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. Seven principles for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. That's what we're going to be looking at in our time together. And the first one is this. Pursue God's glory. Pursue God's glory. As we seek to embrace the discipline of shepherding our heart for the purpose of honoring the Lord in our Bible reading, we must first and foremost resolve to pursue God's glory. Uh, Really, the best ultimate end to honoring the Lord in our Bible reading is a heartfelt pursuit, a a heart-rooted desire to honor God, to glorify God in that. Everything in the Christian life is to be about glorifying God. We know this from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Reading your Bible is first and foremost about God's glory. It can't be first and foremost about you getting something out of it, right? And that's the temptation or, or the mindset that many of us come to God's word with. Right? I, I need to do my quiet time and i got to make sure I get something out of it. Listen, you will get something out of it. Far. You will get something out, out of it. But what we must cultivate is a pursuit of God's glory. So, God will be faithful. He will do things in you through his word. He will conform you more to the image of Christ He will sanctify you. He will convict you. God will do things in you, whether you feel it or see it or not. That can't be your primary pursuit. What must be your supreme desire as you come before God's word is that God would be glorified. So when I roll out of my bed in the morning and I'm struggling to get my eyes open, I'm not first and foremost thinking, I got to do this so I have a good day. Because my day will go much better for me if I do this. First, and, although those things are true, first and foremost, you open up your Bible because you say, I want to glorify God. And this time right now, coming before Him in His Word will be a great aid for me in that endeavor. So we come to God. We do this to honor him, to glorify him. We don't read our Bible to be good Christians. We don't read our Bibles so we can find a golden nugget to stay with us throughout the day. We read our Bible worshipfully wanting to glorify God by drawing near to our great God in his word. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says this. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We must cultivate a desire to grow in our knowledge and our discernment so that we can approve or discover or distinguish what is excellent. So that we grow in holiness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Why? Why do we pursue these things? To the glory and praise of God. That's the ultimate end of the Christian, and that must be the ultimate end of our Bible reading. This changes reading your Bible from where your feelings are the dictator. How you feel about something is the dictator of the fruitfulness of your time in God's word. Or two, did I worship God? Did did I humbly submit myself before him? And that should be the passion of each one of us. That should be the desire that we pursue, right? That should be our heart's longing. And I'm sure we've all been tempted in some way or another to base the successfulness of our Bible reading on our emotions afterwards. And that's just, that's just unhelpful. We're fickle. We can't do things that way. First and foremost, we seek to glorify God. We pray, and in faithful discipline, if need be, 
when our feelings are not where they ought to be, we fight what we feel with what we know to be true, and we bring our hearts to God's word so that we will grow in the real knowledge and all discernment so we can distinguish what is excellent, which is the glory of God. One of the most foolish or counterproductive things we could do is actually wait to read our Bible until our heart is in the right place. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you said that. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. Where, ah, man, I just, I didn't want to come before the Lord in his word because my heart wasn't in the right place. And I didn't want to dishonor him by bringing the wrong heart before him in his word. Part of seeking to honor God in our Bible reading is humbly submitting ourselves to God, thinking less of ourselves and concerning ourselves more with God. That should be the heartbeat. And so we bring our hearts to God's word when we feel like it, and we bring our hearts to God's word when we don't feel like it. That's why it's a discipline. We come to God's word, whether we feel it or not, because it's it's what he desires of us. It's what we have been instructed to do, to shepherd our hearts with God's word and, and to care for ourselves, to, to meditate on God's word, to read it, to understand it. So we come before God's word regardless of how we feel. And oftentimes what the Lord is pleased to use as the means of changing our feelings towards his word is our actual time in God's word. It's easy to be deceived to think we don't need God. It doesn't matter. And that's all false. We need to come before him humbly and dependently. So the first directive in shepherding your heart to honor God in your Bible reading is pursue God's glory. Next, the next directive for shepherding your heart and to honor God in your Bible reading is this. Depend on God as your greatest aid. Depend on God as your greatest aid. The greatest aid in my Bible reading is God himself. Is God himself. And so as you come before the Lord in his word, pray. Look to him as your greatest aid in your Bible reading. Ask God for help. Ask God to help you understand his his meaning. Ask God to help you understand what his purpose for writing is or was. What was he intending to reveal? And if you're a believer, you can have confidence today to be able to read your Bible, grow closer to God, honor him, please him, grow in your faith as you rest in his word. You depend on God as your greatest aid in your Bible reading. What does this look like? Well, this looks like prayerfully coming to the Lord with humility and dependence upon him. You cultivate a humble, dependent disposition before God as you worshipfully come before him in his word. Prior to salvation, you could read God's word, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, however, if you are a believer, you have eyes to see the things of God, to come before him in his word and to have true understanding, to welcome the truth into your life. You are no longer seeking to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, but now you want to know it. You want to live in it. You want to walk in that truth. And how important is it then to come to the Lord in prayer? Seek his help to see what you must about him in his word, humbly and worshipfully, Uh, that you would see and accept what he has to say about the nature of sin and the danger that lies within, that you would gird yourself with the reality of the saving nature of God who provided a way of salvation and provided freedom from sin's bondage and the penalty through his own son. And that you would be able to observe God's heart for righteousness and the holiness of his people. That you would fill your heart and mind to love what God loves and pursue those things. Prayer. It is critically important as you seek to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. He is your greatest aid. Next, 
employ self-control. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Employ, employ self-control in your reading practices. Now, while God is your greatest aid, you must also exhibit self-control in your Bible reading. As scripture is God-breathed, it's spirit-inspired. The Bible, he, his spirit inspired the Bible, yet he does not short-circuit the scripture by whispering in the ear what they mean. He, he doesn't simply just put impressions on our heart what he has actually revealed. When we pray for his help, we don't pray that he will spare us the hard work of rigorous reading and study and meditation. What we pray is that he would make us diligent to work hard and humble enough to welcome his truth into our lives. See, you must understand the work of the Spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of Scripture is not to make study unnecessary but rather to make us unconditionally open to receive and submit to what our study reveals, instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. Well, let me say that again. The work of the Spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of Scripture is not to make study unnecessary, as if if you read something, have an impression, and get a big idea about what it must mean, the Holy Spirit is working, and now you don't actually have to do the hard work of studying the text. No, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us unconditionally open to receive, be unconditionally open to receive God's truth. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of preconceived notions, regardless of previous love of sin. No, we, we want to humble ourselves regardless of what God's word says before God's word. Because we understand it as such. It is God's word. And so then we submit to what our study reveals. We yield to it instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. This takes self-control. And this self-control in our Bible reading can be separated into three categories that we're going to look at. The first is we need to hold fast to the normal use of words in language. So as we seek to depend upon God as our greatest aid in our Bible reading, looking to his spirit to help us in our discipline, in our self-control, one of the ways we do that is that we hold fast to the normal use of words in language. In this, we expect a single, clear meaning. And this is how language works. Communication is a gift from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence. We communicate in order to be understood in these ways, and so it is with God in Scripture. Isaiah 45, 18 and 19 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. He goes on to say, I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning in his words were not secret. They were not unfindable. God communicated to be understood. This doesn't mean God has spoken regarding everything. There are secret things that belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But what he has spoken, he has done so to be understood. This also doesn't mean everything is easy to understand or doesn't require work or effort. Peter tells his readers that Paul's words were difficult to understand at times. We see that in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But we do expect to discover one coherent message from one passage to another, and this takes patience, and this takes self-control. As we hold fast to the normal use of words and language, we let words mean what they mean. We don't impose special meaning, secret meaning, into those words. We don't spiritualize things. Scott Maxwell has said it this way, if a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter letting him know the hallway light is out, he doesn't conclude from that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. 
he reads the note normally and puts a new bulb in the hallway. We are to read our Bibles this way. And this practice is known as the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. Literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation or hermeneutic. The literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. You are taking into account the actual literal meaning of the words within the grammatical way language works. Laboring to understand the history or the context of where this passage sits and to whom the original audience was. And in this, you may come across metaphors. This is normal use of language. And it is clear when it's being used. When Jesus said, I am the door, in John 10, 7 through 10, we don't conclude Jesus is made of wood and swings on a hinge. No, the imagery in his metaphor is that Jesus is the entrance or the gateway into eternal life. And, and it's good to, even when looking at metaphors, to begin thinking through what is a door and what is the purpose of a door? What was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting his semaphoric resemblance of a door? Again, different categories of writing don't threaten this. We know that historical books are written in a different style or context than poetic literature and prophetic or epistles. Just because God told Israel to do something at some point in time doesn't mean we all now have to do that same thing. It also doesn't mean that God's word is not applicable or, or unimpactful to our lives if we let his commands to a certain people at a certain time remain for those people. To the contrary, we can see wonderful, glorious things about God's nature, about his care for his people in those types of passages, as well as other wonderful, glorious truths about God. Now next, as you employ self-control, you must hold fast the normal use of words and language, and you must also actively equip yourself to understand God's word. Actively equip yourself to understand God's word. Recognize this is a process. Uh, don't be disheartened. If, if you feel ill-equipped to study, to study God's word, don't not read your Bible. Read your Bible. And pursue growth in your ability to understand the different nuances that you find in Scripture. Recognize it's a process. You can't equip yourself all at once. This takes time. Work to grow in your understanding of language. Work to understand the context of passages and books. Read your Bible. Reread your Bible. Reread passages over and over again. We must be faithful to intentionally shepherd our hearts. And this can be a challenge. I know lives are full, schedules are packed, and sometimes we're fighting just to fit our time of, of being exposed to God's word in the crevices of our life. Whether it's uh, riding to work in the car and we're listening or whatnot, uh, there's lots of ways where, where we might try to to expose our hearts to God's word because we're struggling to find time elsewhere. And that's good. That's commendable that we would seek to, to not compromise bringing our hearts at all to God's word, but that we would, whether we're doing chores or yard work or driving in the car, that we would expose our hearts to God's word. Those are good things, but don't let that be the entirety of your study of God's word or and or the equipping of yourself to handle God's word well. If you have no idea when Ezekiel was written, to whom he is speaking, or whom it was concerning, you'll have a lot of difficulty. But if you can labor to grow in your understanding that, that simply knowing it was written around 570 to 592 B.C. to Jews captive in Babylon, concerning the condemnation upon Judah's faithless leaders and godless foes, and the consolation regarding Israel's future, you'll find a world of difference in your Bible study. Find resources to know those things. Equip yourself to understand those types of things. And let that be a process of growing in your equipping to handle well God's word. Understand language. 
I was the world's worst sentence diagrammer. And through the patience of many, uh, have grown in that practice. And it's worth it. And it didn't happen overnight. It takes time. Next, lastly, under employing self-control in your Bible reading and your reading practices, we see understand the relationship between interpretation and application. Understand the relationship between interpretation and application. This is very important to get your mind around. There is an important relationship between interpretation, the interpretation of a text, and the application of a text. Or the implications of a text. And I use those words interchangeably sometimes. I think there's some nuance to both of them. Application or in implication. I tend to lean towards implication. I'll explain why in a moment. But there are, there are implications or there's an interpretation of the text. And then there are implications of that text on one's life. While there is a relationship, it's important to understand there is a distinction as well. Interpretation and application, they complement each other, but they can't replace one another. And application or the implications of a text are best built on the interpretation. Are you following? So your application or the implications of that text on your life is going to be best built on an accurate interpretation of what that text is saying. So, let's put it this way. Interpretation is this, understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in his historical situation. The application is the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of that meaning in the passage. Thus, simply understanding rightly an interpretation should not satisfy us. We should labor to understand how that intersects in our life, right? Application or implication. And likewise, rushing to application or implications of the text on our lives without diligent work of interpretation is a dangerous practice. Because what if we have it wrong? And we're changing the way we live and what we do and how we think based off of what we think is God's word, but we've missed the interpretation. If a wife reads Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And she concludes the meaning of this text is she must regard her husband as more important to herself. She's conflated how she believes her life must change with what Paul actually means. Paul writing the believers in Philippi is helping them understand in the midst of persecution, Christ-like sacrificial consideration of each other over themselves. Yet if this passage means that what the wife concluded, what does this passage mean for her husband? You see, there is one meaning to the text. There may be multiple implication or applications applied to various situations in different times, but there is one meaning in each text. And we need to labor in self-control to conclude what the passage means or what the correct interpretation is of the passage. And then based on that, consider the application or the implications of that one meaning on our lives. Sometimes this might be direct actions, things we're called to do in response to God's words. Sometimes it might be just the implications in our thinking, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves. And again, this takes self-control in our Bible reading, and this honors God when we approach his word this way. Well, moving along next, how, how must we honor the Lord in our Bible reading? We're going to spend a little bit of time in Psalm 119. We must long to be purified by God. And we see a wonderful example of one who longs to be purified by God's word. 
and actually gives specific instruction on how a man, particularly a young man, can keep his way pure before the Lord. Go ahead and open up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're going to just take a brief little detour looking at verses 9 through 16. We'll read it together. Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, or blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all your ordinances of your, of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Well, this honors God when we long to be purified by God. We come to God's word because we want to be holy as he is holy. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We want to glorify God in our lives. And so we want his word to have its purifying effect on our lives. Here we see seven directives for how we come to God's word in order that it would have a purifying effect on our lives. Number one, we see, seek God with all your heart. Seek God with all your heart. Look at verse 10 again. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. You see, the word of God is not the end. The word of God is a means to an end. You seek God's word because you seek God. If we're to keep God's word, as verse 9 says, there must be a personal seeking of God himself. We must seek to love God, seek to worship him, seek to glorify him in our lives. And if you do what the Bible says, but have no love for God, all you have done is transferred your sin into legalism. You must desire God, you must seek him, you must plead with him to keep you near his commandments and his word because you want to be near to him. And it must be done, look at verse 10, with all your heart, not a half-hearted attempt, but with all your heart, come to God in his word. And remember, sometimes we may not feel that way, but we come to God anyway, and we pray, and we seek his help, and we trust in him. Sometimes, sometimes, the reflection of seeking God faithfully is when we come to him even when we don't feel like it. That's a great discipline. The psalmist knows something about himself after he pledges to seek the Lord with all his heart. He understands there is a wandering within himself, and so he says, do not let me wander from your commandments. This is a necessary prayer for each of us, regardless of how committed we may be, that we wouldn't wander from his commandments. There is still a capacity to wander from God's commandments, and we too must pray, don't let me wander from your commandments, God. Next, we see treasure God's instruction in your heart. The next directive that we see as we long to be purified is to treasure God's instruction in your heart. Look at verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. The psalmist says, your word I have treasured in my heart. He has held it in the depths of his heart. There's a, a deep valuation of the word that causes his heart to keep the word. You must treasure the word so that none of its riches might slip through your fingers. Treasure the word so that you do not treat God's word carelessly, that you might steward it well, that you won't forget it. This is how God's word must be in our hearts. As a treasure carefully watched over and guarded, this is how God's word must be in our lives. If we're to keep our way pure, we must treasure it. And he says treasure it because he doesn't want to sin against God. That's where we see the word of God helping us keep our way pure. And this is critical as we think back to just the practice of hermeneutics, the practice of how we study God's word. If we had a priceless vase, we wouldn't just throw it around carelessly. 
we would want to be as careful as possible with this delicate artifact. Well, listen, we need to be even more so careful with God's word as we treasure it, that we wouldn't distort it or change it or, or make it say something it doesn't or make it, make it not say something it does. We need to treasure it. Do you treasure God's word like this? Uh, the psalmist understood that if there is not a treasuring of God's word in his life, there is an almost certainty that he will sin against God. But if he does treasure God's word, there is, a, there is hope for him to keep it. How about you? Do you treasure God's word? Do you have a, a, a deep passion to guard it, protect it, keep it? Next, number three, we see, or letter C, long for instruction from God. Long for instruction from God. Verse 12 begins by praising the Lord, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord, or blessed are you, Yahweh. And the psalmist breaks out in praise, and it seems he is immediately applying the previous verse of treasuring God's word, and is now praising God for his word, and in so doing, he humbles himself, he submits himself. Then look at the second line of verse 12. He says, teach me your statutes. He submits himself under God. The psalmist does not view himself as over the word of God, bringing judgment upon it. No, rather, he's submitting himself under the word of God. He knows the value of God's word. He treasures God's word. And now he is eager to be taught by God's word. He recognizes that God's word sits above him. He's not the judge and jury. He's not the dictator of God's word, over God's word. God said this, I don't agree with that. I'm going to live this way. No, he is a humble man, a contrite man. This psalmist writes 176 verses on the word of God, and he continually asks that God teach him God's word. It doesn't, how, it doesn't matter how much you think you know about God's word. You submit yourself to God, and you plead with him more. I want more. Next, we see the psalmist proclaim God's instruction to others. We see this in verse 13. With my lips, I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. God's word is best kept when it is kept by someone who is proclaiming it. Everyone who proclaims Christ as his or her word is called to proclaim the word of God. Start in your homes. Start with your own heart. Then your homes to tell others of the truths of the word of God. And the more you tell others, the more you will keep God's word because it will be etched into your own conscience. Now, this is not a call for every person to be a teacher in every public avenue they have access to. This is not a call. Go throw around Bible verses on social media, every opportunity that you have. No. This is one who so loves God's word. It is on their heart and lips. And the same humble disposition under God's word is presented in their sharing God's word. This is one in their most immediate context. God's word is flowing out of them. Does that describe you in your homes? If, if you're married and have kids, is God's word on your lips? Do they hear you talk about God's word? Your greatest audience should not be social media. It should be your home, your friends, those you interact with, your coworkers. Proclaim God's goodness. Proclaim his statutes. Next, we see rejoice in God's instruction. Rejoice in God's instruction. Look at verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all, excuse me, all riches. If we are to keep our way pure, we are to rejoice in the word of God. Rejoice in the word of God. He says, as much as in all riches. Listen, this book reveals things about the living God. 
the Bible reveals truth about God and about you. And the, this book holds the key to eternal salvation, to relationship with God, to fellowship with him. This book lays out in detail man's past and what the future holds. Nothing is like this book. We're to rejoice in it, pleasure in it, more than all riches. If you found a bag of $10,000, how many people would you be telling about this bag that you found of $10,000? Maybe nobody because you just want to keep the bag. But how much would you be rejoicing in that? Well, how much infinitely, infinitely more valuable is God's word? In fact, the psalmist here says, then all riches, all riches. What if money was never an issue for you again? What kind of relief do you think you would feel if you had access to riches where you never had to think about the financial implications of anything you did again? Does your heart jump with excitement at the thought of that? Oh, so much of my, so much of my worry, so much of my life's troubles and hardship would be relieved if that was the case. Listen, that's not true. And God's word is more valuable than all of those things. Our hearts should jump far more at what we actually do possess in God's word than the prospect of all the riches of the world would just be fleeting and not satisfying anyway. Next letter F, meditate on God's instruction. We see this in verse 15. He, the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. To keep the word of the Lord, we must meditate on it. Meditate on his precepts, regard his ways. What is it to meditate on God's word? Well, it, it's to recall the word to your memory, to, to think on it, to roll it over and over in your mind. It should dominate your life, your thinking. This is what we should do throughout the day. There must be a, a deep considering of God's word and what God expects. Have you ever gotten into some sort of confrontation and you went back and forth with somebody back and forth and they said this and you said this and then afterwards you're just like, oh, they said this. I can't believe they said this. And I said this. Oh, I should have said this, right? We're all so much better in those situations when we replay it over and over in our heads than in the actual moment. But you just, you just chew on that and it replayed in your mind. There's no room in our hearts for that kind of, of replay. What we need to meditate on, what we need to fix our minds on, is the Word of God. The word for meditating was actually the word used in the ancient world to represent a cow that would be chewing grass. And the cow would chew it, chew it until it became a cud. And the cud would sit in the cow's mouth where the cow would chew it over and over again and over again, trying to pull out every drop of juice of the grass, savoring it throughout the day. That's how we are called to interact with the word of God, that we would meditate on it, meditate on it, think on it. And then lastly, what we see here is that we must joyfully retain God's instruction. Joyfully retain God's instruction. We see that in verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. And then here we see, you see that there? Delight in your statutes. That's the joyfully. And then the second phrase, I shall not forget your word. Retain it. Don't forget God's word. Joyfully retain it. Remember God's word and delight in God's word. Shall not forget it. God's word cannot come and go in your life. It must be written on the tablet of our hearts. We must absorb its truth, absorb its riches. This might be memorization or retention. The psalmist declares, I will not forget your word. God's word has found a home in the psalmist's heart. We must long for God's purifying effect of his word to be present in our lives. This is so helpful if we can remind ourselves to think this way about God's word. We will find so much aid, so much help in our fight against sin. Whatever sin you might be struggling with. Maybe it's anxiety with the current coronavirus situation. Uncertainty about what the future holds. 
disappointment, discouragement, anger, frustration, all of these things with the with political figures or decisions being made, whatever the sin you might be struggling, lust, envy, anger, all of these things, whatever we're struggling with, you will be aided immensely in your fight against that sin if you remember these things when you come before God's word. If you pray through these things, ask God to help you love his word this way. Keep his word this way. Next, how do we honor the Lord in our Bible reading? We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. Humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. We must joyfully submit ourselves to God. We've talked about this a little bit already. We joyfully submit ourselves to God's wisdom. God gets to decide what is right. God gets to decide what is good and what is bad. And so we entrust ourselves to him by submitting ourselves to God's word. We submit ourselves to God's word. Our pride isn't to rule us. What we think is right, what we think we have figured out. Our emotions are not to rule us, how we feel about any given situation. I really feel like this is how I should respond. Okay, well, what does God say? What does God say? Our Bible reading is to guide us. God's word is to guide us. Statements like, I, could, I just couldn't believe in a God who would want this for me or who would do this way. Or I couldn't believe in a God who would anything, fill in the blank. It, it can't be on our lips. We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. We can't bring a predetermined expectation of what God must say to various situations. This is especially difficult. This, is, this discipline is especially difficult when we have experienced extremely difficult circumstances, right? When we feel like we know what's right or true because of what we've experienced and we want to lord that over what God has said clearly in his word, we are walking in dangerous territory. We can't do that. We can't plead God's word, not say what it clearly says, because of what I've experienced or what I've heard others experience. I know God says, love your enemies, but you don't know what they did to me. You just can't justify it. We must humble ourselves under God's word. Next, God is God. We are not. We must humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom, and we must trustingly trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. Trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. God's word is sufficient to aid us in honoring the Lord in any and every circumstance. There's nothing you are facing in life today have faced in life or will face in life that you are unprepared for if you bring your heart to God in his word. He will give you all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has revealed and given us his word. Actually, scripture is God-breathed. It is God-breathed and useful in teaching, correcting, training, rebuking in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. There's no deed that the Lord has for you that he hasn't given you what you need to accomplish it from his word. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful promise. Have you ever felt just helpless in sin, hopeless in discouragement? Confounded by how to move forward with the various circumstances in life? Well, listen, friend, God has not left you hopeless. He's not left you without direction. He has given to us everything we need, and we must trustingly resign ourselves to God's word, knowing that he has sufficiently given us all that we need. 
And then lastly, as we wrap up our time, we must obediently embrace God's care for us, or you must obediently embrace God's care for you. We must all do this through the church, through the church. Obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. And I love this. God has intentionally brought about unbelievable care for his people through the church. Through the church. And so we can depend on God as our greatest aid in prayer. But that doesn't drive us away from accountability or fellowship within the body of Christ. And we can trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. But that doesn't put a wedge between us and other brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, all of these other points complement and help point us to actually embracing God's design for the believer, which is to be interconnected in love with other believers, to be part of a local assembly, to be part of a church. And this is truly great. God's design for his people is to be a part of a church, to not forsake assembling together. That there would be pastors and elders who guard the flock and watch over the doctrine of the church and equip the saints for the work of ministry. There is safety in this. And if you find yourself embracing theology that no one around you believes, you, you probably need to slow down and make sure that you're listening to others well, more than you're listening to yourself possibly in that moment. Or if you have a pattern of life that you think is okay, and a brother comes to you and opens his Bible and says, Dear friend, would you please look at this? I'm concerned. It seems that you are not living in accordance with what Scripture clearly says. And, and he starts asking questions. You don't, you don't push that person away. No, you humbly listen and come before God and His Word that you might honor Him in all areas of life. Well, that is our time for today. Hopefully this was helpful for you and some good resources for you to consider as you study your Bibles, as you read your Bible, uh, that we all would be honoring to the Lord as we seek to grow in holiness, as we seek to please him in all things. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our Bibles. Thank you for the countless men and women who have shed blood and sacrificed to pave the way for us to even have English Bibles today. We know that it is because of your sovereign goodness and will that we have our Bibles, and we know that you use human means, and we thank you for those human means that you have used. Lord, I pray that we would be men who honor you in our Bible reading, that we would be disciplined, that we would be self-controlled, that we would work hard to understand what you have revealed, and that we would be faithful in these things. Help us to endeavor to grow in these things as a lifelong pursuit, as we want to grow in our fellowship and worship and relationship with you. Thank you for your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.